Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital, and I am joined today by Christine Kim and Lucas Cheyen from Galaxy Digital Research. Um, and I'm also joined by our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading to talk markets. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about MakerDAO, the largest uh, uh, crypto collateralized decentralized stablecoin. We're going to talk about a Bank of America report that uh, suggest that their clients are still extremely interested in digital assets and blockchain technology despite the onset of crypto winter. And Christine is going to talk to us about the difficulty bomb delay on Ethereum, the Great Glacier upgrade. And we're going to have a little chat on that. But before we dive into those three topics, let's hand it over to my good friend Bimnet Abibi to talk about markets um, today. Bim, it looks like I don't know. We're we're down. Uh, the Nasdaq's down eight percent uh, this month. Uh, the Dow six six point eight. The 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 S and P almost almost eight. Looks like today we're down a little bit. There were some comments from the Fed that said um, Powell said that the U.S. economy was in strong shape, but that uh, the process of bringing inflation down could cause some pain. Um, I don't know if anything else has changed in your view since we've last talked. But how are you looking at markets today? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a pretty good summary. Not not too much has changed. Um, you know, we still think that, you know, terminal rate pricing is, is a bit too, too high. Um, you know, the market is still struggling with this narrative, you know, between, you know, recession versus, you know, fighting in, in inflation. Um, so it's, it's definitely very tricky. Uh, a couple of things that have caught my eye this week um, has sort of been the, the move lower and in inflation expectations. Um, so inflation break evens are, you know, trading at, at, at the lowest level um, they have, you know, basically since since the start of the year. And that signals sort of, um, you know, more concerns around you know, re- recession and, and hard landing, uh, making their, their way into into the, you know, the inflation market. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, right now that the Fed's in a, in a pretty tough spot in, in the sense that, um, you know, the, expectations are for them to hike, you know, financial conditions have tightened, right? So they need to essentially meet um, the, these expectations um, or else they'll, they'll actually be easing monetary policy, which is not what you're supposed to be doing with inflation, you know, printing at 8.6. Uh, but high level, we have seen some signs that uh, growth is slowing, that certain parts of, of, of markets, you know, domestically and globally are slowing. You had a, a really, you've had a really like weak batch of data out of Europe in particular over, over the last week and a half. You had, you know, PMIs miss, um, you had inflation miss um, th- this morning, all, all to the to the downside. And so, um, you know, I, I think that's something to, to latch on to if, if you're a, a market participant that, that thinks that, um, you know, no way the, the, the these central banks can actually meet um, these expectations. And then lastly, just want to touch on crypto. Um, crypto trades in incredibly poorly. It's 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 fairly it's been fairly correlated on an intraday basis to you know the S and P and 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 the Nasdaq. Um, but you know I think that if you start to see another leg lower in stocks, which is very possible, um, 
you know, I, I think crypto will, will, will likely follow. And, and there's a pretty good reason for, for why stocks, you know, will likely go lower um, over the next month or so. And I think that's just it's just going to be a function of sort of earnings revisions. You know, I, I expect, you know, consumer activity to, to slow down, um, you know, as, as folks deal with, you know, high inflation, high, you know, high food prices, high rents you know, high, high, high gas prices, et cetera. Um, and they change their, their, their consumption behavior. Um, so more broadly speaking, you know, I, I would expect, you know, continued de- declines in, in data activity and then subsequently earnings and stocks lower and then crypto lower on, on the back of that. Happy to expand on any part of that. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's still shaky feeling um, across the financial economy. Um, but I was out, I was out in, uh, in town today, saw tons of people at the Starbucks still in the morning. I mean, those are overpriced coffees. Um, there, you know, I'm, I'm making coffee at home. I'm in bear market mode these days. Like, but I saw a lot of people at the supermarket, even though, you know, an average, like my average, you know, for a family of three is, is like three or $400 now, maybe a week in groceries. People are still out there. Um, and, and then flights, I mean, flight activity i saw on the tsa um check-ins on bloomberg is nearly although not but not at but nearly at the pre-pandemic highs you know it it doesn't feel like we've seen um that much of a hit yet but it sounds like what you're saying for consumers i mean um but that we'll see it soon um in Uh, your expectation no absolutely i think so far you know the u.s consumer has been able to weather um, you know, the, the price increases largely because of, of how large the, the savings base had grown, you know, during the pandemic, you know, remember, you know, work from home, you know, people, you know, save money, not not commuting, you know, cooking from home, uh, people, you know, all, also, um, you know, generally, you know, weren't spending as much money on like outdoor activities, etc. They also received a bunch of stimulus checks, um, right. And if you, you know, traded the market well, you probably saw a decent appreciation in, in, in your, your asset portfolio and home prices went up. And so, you know, people generally still feel fairly wealthy as a function of, you know, just the, the aggregate savings base that you've had. But what, what you want to focus on is sort of, you know, are, are consumers now spending more than they're saving? And, and absolutely. And the way to think about that is is just like it is disposable income increasing or, or decreasing. And right now it's it's firmly decreasing. Um, and 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 you can see that in sort of some some of the, the the earnings forecasts and results that have come out recently from from some of the consumer discretionary companies. Uh, what one in particular highlighted, you know, very weak North American sales, you know, for, for the past quarter. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think that on a go forward basis, you know, particularly once you get through the summer, summer travel and, and holiday season that, you know, the consumer will sort of start starting to clamp down um, in terms of spending activity and that'll have ripple effects on, on the broader economy. What, one other point to talk about with you before we move on um, is the situ- the geopolitical situation and as it relates to energy. Um, I did see that President Biden announced um just the other day that the U.S. is going to start holding its first onshore drilling auctions uh, with what Reuters called a blow to the climate agenda. But in general, it sounds like attempting to increase production, uh, domestic production. That followed a meeting of the G7 uh, that in which Emmanuel Macron, the president of, of, of France, was overheard on video explaining to President Biden why the Middle East couldn't expand its production anymore. It was already at capacity. 
Um, and then the last point I wanted to raise on this, which is, I think, really kind of earth shattering, ground shaking in geopolitics was Turkey signing a memorandum with Norway and Sweden, sorry, Finland and Sweden um, to uh, allow and support uh, those two latter countries accession into NATO, um, which we know is going to uh, you know, be at the consternation of Russia uh, to an extreme. Do we think you know, I don't know what your sense is on on geopolitics, but this seem, still seems like a major um, forward uh, existential risk for markets uh, in the sort of near and medium term. No, a- absolutely, and uh, you know, but I, I I think a lot of that is already baked into sort of the the price of uh, of energy right now, right? Like, there's a reason why you know gas prices are you know at five dollars a barrel and. You know, WTI crude is trading at, you know, $111 a barrel because we have geopolitical uncertainty. There is risk premium built into the, the, the current price of, of energy. Um, but high level without delving too much into the geopolitics of it, you know, fundamentally commodities, you know, are, are, are you know, a, a demand and, and supply market. And right now, you know, mo- most of the energy folks, you know, that, that I speak to or, or, or read from, um, you know, are indicating a very tight spot market. Like demand is still incredibly high, um, and and you know, as 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 you mentioned, you know, supply from the Middle East isn't likely to pick up in, in a meaningful way. And then you have sort of the the exogenous risk of you know Chinese Chinese activity finally you know picking back up again. Um, and so you know, I do think that you know it's going to be tough for for oil to to trade that much lower. Uh, but I'll but I'll leave you with sort of the the one thing that's st- stuck with me in in my career. You know, I'll tell you when when I first started um, in markets. You know, I, I focused on an energy company, um, and this energy company, um, you know, when energy prices were at one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel, decided to you know spend a lot of money on projects with you know very high sort of cost of of of, of production, right? production that only really be, you know, profitable at, you know, if crude prices, you know, stayed incredibly high. So oftentimes what, what you'll see when, when energy prices get, get so high um, is that you'll, you'll have a bunch of like new projects come on board that, that are, you know, on average, much less efficient, much less productive than, than the ones before them. And so what you'll see you know, is like when, as energy prices remain high, it's just a, a bunch of like investment because, you know, shareholders will want you to invest at, at those levels, you know, given sort of where they forecast margins to be. Um, and they'll just, you know, simply be like, you know, why wouldn't you, you know, produce something at, at $40 and sell it at 100 all day? And so um, I do think that, you know, that there's some natural forces at, at play that will eventually sort of cool the, the energy market, whether that's, you know, demand eventually cooling or, or you know, let's say next year or, or, or the year after, you know, Europe being better prepared, uh, you know, for, for, for sort of, you know, Russian nat gas to, to go lower uh, or, 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 you know, not, to not have that, that supply as much or for, you know, anything, you know, abnormal with, with NATO production. Awesome. Bimnet, thank you so much for joining as always. Up next, let's talk about MakerDAO, uh, the largest, I think also the oldest collateralized, uh, decentralized stablecoin, um, uh, also built on Ethereum. They had a governance vote uh, that was, I think, by maker standards among the highest turnout and the closest uh, in terms of outcome um, that uh, ultimately the proposal was shot down, but the proposal essentially would have created a new group that 
I don't know, uh, a smaller group to coordinate some of the lending decisions and stuff, sort of like creating a council um, or something. Lucas Chan from Galaxy Digital Research is here to uh, tell us about it. And um, Lucas, can you just give us the overview of what happened? Yeah, definitely. Thanks a lot for having me on, Alex. Um, so as you mentioned, you know, Maker, I think, has really been one of the core borrow lend protocols. And um, they've really been setting standards for other protocols and stable coins, especially after the collapse of UST. Uh, but Maker also has its problems. You know, Dai has struggled to maintain its peg in the past. Uh, Maker, the uh, co considerable amount of collateral for Dai consists of USDC and other centralized stablecoins. Um, and so over the past year or so, I think there's been a lot of debate about the future direction of the protocol. And so um, six months ago, uh, an active contributor to the Maker protocol, his name's uh, Luca Prosperi, he put forward a proposal to establish a new core unit called the Lending Oversight Core Unit. The abbreviation for it is LOVE-001. And, you know, just to give some context, core units are the actual working units for the Maker Protocol. So they're essentially the teams of individuals that actually oversee the operation and growth of the protocol. So there's a risk core unit, a developer core unit. Um, there's even like a strategic happiness core unit, I found out. It's a very interesting uh, core unit setup. But Essentially, um, Luca with uh, Love 0001 or 001 was hoping to kind of establish an oversight committee for the Maker Protocol so that it could onboard a variety of new complex assets without really significantly increasing the overall risk of the protocol. Um, and I kind of, as one of my friends who works at Maker explained it to me, the idea was really to like professionalize the Maker core unit teams. Um, that would allow them to get bring on more complex assets, grow the overall asset under management of the protocol, and over time, hopefully reduce its vulnerabilities to any single type of collateral. So um, on June 14th, the proposal went to vote. Um, and on June 27th, it was rejected by maker holders. As, as you mentioned, it was the largest maker vote ever. There was 294,000 of maker tokens um, in the vote. That represents nearly 30% of the total supply. And just to give some context, you know, normally in these type of DeFi protocol votes, you're you know, they're aiming for like five to 10% of government's tokens. So they really, you know, went wow. way past that limit. And um, I think it was really monumental, but it was definitely also a really contentious vote. Um, and so, you know, over the course of the two weeks and over the past few months, we've, we've kind of seen like this narrative emerge um, over this vote about it's really a vote to decide if Maker's purpose is to serve as like a decentralized de-risk credit facility or is Maker's purpose to serve as like an investment vehicle that's maximizing profits? And on one side of that debate, you have, you know, Rune Christensen, that's the founder of Maker, um, and you have other really strong proponents of decentralization. Um, and they've been pushing kind of this plan that Rune published last month called the Endgame Plan. Um, and that essentially lays out an ambitious like reorganization of Maker and its whole governance mechanism. Um, and then on the other side of that, you have this group of core contributors to Maker that are sometimes referred to as the growth task force. Um, and what they've done is they put together this plan called the mission focus maker plan. Um, and what they're trying to do is really adapt the existing governance mechanism in order to streamline processes and professionalize the DAO. And so I'll just close by kind of saying in the intro that I think what really came out of this is this vote was almost like uh, the first battle in an ongoing civil war for the maker protocol. Um, and so while you know the Rune Christensen side appears to have won this time, I think there's definitely going to be considerable debate and argument as new proposals come forward, um, and especially as Rune, who now kind of has to push through his, push through his endgame plan, um, has to start getting some uh, proposals passed.
And Lucas, what are some of the proposals that you foresee being proposed for Ruin's endgame plan? I noticed that there was one pretty contentious one about investing, I think it was 500 million or 500,000 die to, to buy US Treasury bonds. But curious to know what you foresee as kind of like, if that's part of Ruin's endgame plan or not so much, and, and what you foresee as, as the proposals for the endgame plan. Yeah, so so I actually think so the end game plan for Rune is really I think has two main focuses. It's like it's this desire to kind of like reinvigorate almost the governance mechanisms of Maker. Um, so there's this feeling I think that they're kind of stale and really inefficient. And um, in his end game post, he actually walks through like how is Google as an organization organized and where is Alphabet and everything fit into that. And so I think it's this idea of like how do we take um, existing corporate structures and integrate them into a more decentralized fashion to make our protocol more efficient while also being decentralized. So I think one thing that is uh, really going to be like the main focus is this idea of metadows. And basically what that means is he wants to create a group of uh, like specialized business units or core units within the maker protocol that are almost empowered to almost experiment and try new things um, and bring on new collateral. Um, but um, if they're successful, can then be like onboarded into the broader MakerDAO. And if they're not successful, don't have a huge impact on the overall risk of the protocol. You know, there's, I think, 6.2 billion die or so in circulation right now. That's about 10% the size of Tether um, and a bit more than that, uh, uh, the size of USDC. Um, it's obviously an important, important part of the DeFi ecosystem. You know, I just wonder, um, you know, so the vote was the vote was what 60% against and 38% for it looked like, yep. um, with rune side winning against this, uh, love zero zero one proposal. And so nothing happens right now. Right. I mean, this was a, just a rejection of an affirmative proposal. Um, who, who was on, so rune and his supporters, and it seemed like more community members, on on the the no vote side here um who was sort of leading the charge or what types of groups on the on the yes side yeah so it's this other group that's being referred to as kind of the growth task force and i think a lot of them consist of people who are part of existing core units within the maker protocol um you have people who are part of the risk team or the real world asset team um and i think what's a what's a little interesting is um, they actually, their plan actually does share some overlap with Rune and his plan. And so it's more, they, they kind of want to achieve the same thing. Their end goals are really to, you know, reinvigorate the governance, um, protocol for maker, um, and, you know, act, you know, make the quantity and quality of maker votes better. Um, uh, and then also kind of deal with the complexity and specialization that comes with growing maker and making it a more decentralized protocol onboarding things like real world assets. And so um, while, while, while these, these are all people who are already part of Maker, have helped it grow over the past years, and just have a little bit of a contrasting vision of where Maker should go in the future. But you know, I will say I was in the Maker Discord earlier today, kind of like reading through some of the discussions going on. It was definitely interesting to see, you know, Rune had been very active. He was reaching out and he kind of extended an olive branch basically saying, uh, you know, listen, I know you guys lost this vote, but, you know, there are elements of your plan that I think align with mine. And I would like to figure out a way to incorporate it into the end game plan. Awesome. Very fascinating. One thing I also want to add to this discussion is that Ruin was the CEO of the Maker Foundation. He was like the head of what 
was the professional kind of like more centralized organization leading the Maker Foundation. And very recently, I think it was um, maybe sometime last year that he basically gave over the MakerDAO protocol into the hands of MKR token holders. And I thought it was really interesting that this proposal kind of backtracks that whole process of disbanding the Maker Foundation and is trying to revive a more um, coordinated approach to Maker Protocol development. And I think it shows the concern by some MKR token holders that this protocol is not ready for a decentralized governance. It's not ready yet to be completely hands-off. Like It needs some kind of a more active involvement from a core developer team or business unit or um and and so i think i think this is like a, a really good example of when is the right time to to fully decentralize a protocol when is a protocol mature enough to um get hand over to the token holder community um and i think there's still a lot of debate about whether that decision last year of of dissolving maker foundation was a good one it, it does seem like backtracking a little bit i agree yeah, I think it's like part of this really this broader issue facing all of these protocols that are trying to have robust governance measure measures while also being decentralized. And for something like Maker, it comes down to this idea of like, I think, how do you get kind of consent at the high level from all the holders of Maker for, you know, Maker to pursue a specific direction while also kind of empowering subject matter experts that you need at the much more granular level to carry out these really complex financing operations. You know, that like what they're trying to do in terms of incorporating real world assets involves a lot of off-chain stuff that you, you can't just be a developer or a traditional, you know, TradFi person to know how to do. It's another case of uh, relearning how democracy functions uh, on a blockchain, though, this time. Um, I Look, we didn't talk about this, but I wonder if this will come up. I know a lot of people still worry about this. I've been complaining about it for a long time, that a significant portion, as you mentioned, um, Lucas, I think the last time I checked, 50% of all issued DAI was borrowed off of USDC collateral. That is an off-chain, centrally issued fiat stablecoin. Um, highly addressable to regulation. And, and I've always thought that that um, undermines the decentralized goals of the DAI stablecoin, leaving governance sort of aside. Um, that alone, I hope one day they'll, I'm just, I guess this is a little bit of a non sequitur, but I, I really hope that any group um, that is empowered to make decisions about maker and collateral types will um, reconsider that at some point, despite the fact that it's been, you know, very constructive for makers or sorry for dies stability. Uh, well, of course it is because half of it is dollars, <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, long live Psy. I miss ETH only MakerDAO, um, even though it wasn't that stable. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and I think also just going back to what we were talking about in terms of the governance, definitely one thing that has um, emerged from this that is interesting is uh, there's a lot of questions about does Maker have the right sort of governance pro um, process in place to handle these types of votes? Um, like you mentioned, the vote was actually very close initially. Um, and then in like, you know, the last few days, it skewed very heavily in favor of the no's. Um, there's evidence of people borrowing Maker in order to vote yeah. no. Um, there's questions about uh, sh these things called shadow delegators and who's behind them. So um, I think that's probably going to be a big part of the discussion going forward is how do you have these type of really uh, critical monumental votes um, in an actually fair and decentralized way? Just a quick, quick point. Um, you know, I, I think 
you know, as stewards of, of, of DeFi, you know, it's important to note, you know, well, one of the, the key things that, that brought people into DeFi, which was just like higher interest rates, right? Right now, if you look at like interest rates across like a lot of um, DeFi protocols, they're actually quite low, um, you know, relative to, to what you can earn in, in front end money markets. Um, and that's a huge motivator for, for a lot of people, you know, in terms of why they, they would come on chain, why they'd use USDC, why they would, you know, want to, you know, have DAI, um, et cetera, is, is sort of higher interest rates. And, and with, you know, front end policy rates, you know, going up everywhere from, you know, the U.S. to, to Europe, um, you know, I think there's, there's a little bit less sort of motivation to, to, to be in DeFi right now. And I think it's, that's important to acknowledge, you know, given sort of, you know, how, how uh, you know, elevated, you know, certain expectations are. Absolutely. Um, the whole credit and lending market has shifted significantly over the last few months, both on and off chain. Yep. So, okay. Um, I really appreciate it, Lucas. Uh, that background, we'll be watching um, the oldest um, and, you know, most um, and biggest non centralized custodial fiat stablecoin. I don't know how many adjectives I need, but I think you get the picture. All right. Up next, uh, Bank of America released a report. It's a little interesting, I suppose. It's not much, but um, you know, I thought we'd have a quick discussion on this. They said they had a conference last week uh, on digital assets and blockchain technology, and then they released a report saying that you know, serving 160 clients um, that had attended that, that uh, the consensus among those clients was that, quote, blockchain technology and the digital assets ecosystem are here to stay, um, despite the fact that we are, are we in a crypto winter? I'm not sure. I'm actually not sure. I think this could be a a temporary downturn, um, not a not a winter, but I'm not sure what the definition of either of those are. But, you know, I don't know. What, what do you guys think of this? I mean, does this... I, I think there is obviously still a lot of optimism. I wonder if those respondents are saying blockchain technology, meaning, you know, the sort of 2014, 15, 16 incarnation of that, meaning not digital assets, not cryptocurrencies, not, um, you know, public blockchains, but that, you know, we're going to start to see tomatoes and lettuce on the blockchain again. Um, or are they confident that, you know, digital assets on public blockchains are going to come back? I don't know. But I don't know, Christine, you have any thoughts on this? It's not all that surprising. I think that, yes, there are elements of blockchain technology that continue to be extremely revolutionary and useful all around the world, especially during a time where um, we are seeing market downturn, not just in the US, but various other places in the world having access to a permissionless peer-to-peer payment system like Bitcoin, I think is is valuable and we're going to start to see its value a lot more during times of economic downturn than economic prosperity. What, however, I think is important to note about some things that are not here to stay and is relevant because of how many crypto companies are starting to go under is just how much of the DeFi, the decentralized finance ecosystem is not here to stay. It's was very transient. um, And I think it speaks to what Ben was saying about how the high interest rates that were were you know the bread and butter of what was bringing people into DeFi is now gone, and perhaps there needs to be a a rethinking of what is the value proposition of DeFi on 
on blockchain? What is the value proposition of like finance focused applications on the blockchain? And if it's not high interest rates, what is it? And I think that in my opinion, that value proposition should be permissionless access to like lending, borrowing, like all the financial services that normally you would need to give your credit score, your personal identifiable information for. Um, but on that front, again, there's now regulation to regulatory activity around the world suggesting perhaps that aspect of DeFi um, will become regulated in the future. Um, so this is all to say that um, as much as I am still bullish on on crypto, as uh, Bank of America is suggesting many other investors are, we need to take a good hard look at like what isn't what isn't here to stay, and if it's if high interest rates for DeFi aren't here to stay, then what is really the value proposition we should be we should be focusing on? Yeah, I think public blockchains are still clearly very powerful, but um, I don't know, Lucas, what were your thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, I think just to build on what Christine was saying, I think you can use the exact same framework to look at NFT space as well. Um, we've seen you know NFT volumes drop dramatically, and um, we've also just seen interest in NFTs, I think, as a result of the fact that you can't get these you know, monumental gains immediately kind of wane a little bit. And so I, I will definitely be interested. I think NFTs are a very sticky asset. Once once you get involved with an NFT and an NFT community, you're likely to stick around. But um, I'm very interested to see how, you know, through a crypto winter, uh, what sort of NFT projects really thrive and, um, you know, what are washed out. Yeah, definitely some are going to be, some already have been. Um, this is one of those classic times when the stuff that's built to last um, with real value proposition can shine. And, um, you know, I think, you know, look, so many more people learned about Bitcoin and Ethereum and digital assets and whatever else it was, NFTs, uh, over the last two years than any other time in Bitcoin's history. Um, and just like prior, I think, you know, bubbles in Bitcoin, you know, that wave of interest, sure, a lot of it will have been transitory, it will um, have have participated in things that that themselves are transitory for one reason or another. Um, but portions of that growing interest um, become true believers. And I think, you know, obviously, for good reason, we're all uh, are, I think, ourselves true believers in the power of public blockchains to, you know, positively impact our world. Um, and that number of people that that, uh, you know, came for the the run, the bull run, but stayed for the the revolution um, just keeps rising. And and I think one of my takeaways from this report and uh, from this conference is that, you know, it's no longer just, you know, average mom and pop that came in are coming in on bull runs. It's institutional investors and. Sure, some of them, I, I bet most of these folks, like most uh, institutional investors in general, are sitting on a lot of cash on the sidelines, you know, based on uh, assessments of the current, you know, financial situation. And, uh, you know, as Bimnet has been talking about with us for several weeks, um, but clearly their interest hasn't waned. And so I think, you know, when when conditions change, when um, applications uh, are built that really, sh you know, prove the value of this technology. And there are obviously some already, um, of course, Bitcoin being a major one. Um, I think that these people will will come back. And I think that's a very different situation than, say, the 2017 uh, bull run. Um, so anyway, I don't know, just we flagged this, thought it was kind of interesting. I guess, you know, we're going to have to see like how long this goes and and how, you know, will there be big bank digital asset conferences if we're still in a deep 
crypto winter in six months, right? Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Alex, I mean, on the topic of crypto winter, you kind of said that you don't believe it's going to be a crypto winter, that there's enough of a rationale in you that says that, you know, this is just a temporary downturn. I mean, what makes you say that? What kind of signs are you looking at that makes you so optimistic about market in the future? That's a good question. I mean, I've been wrestling this. Like I said, I don't really know what the definition of either a downturn or a winter is. It's obvious you know, that we're down a lot from all time highs across all major crypto assets. Um, but just given that the, you know, there was obviously, um, you know, froth and, and greed and and unsustainable business models that were happening and, and sort of emerged uh, over the last bull run in crypto. So there were some intrinsic factors that have played a role here. Um, but most of those were, you know, sort of exposed by um, the downturn itself. They, in my view, they didn't, mostly cause the the decline. Um, instead, it was extrinsic macroeconomic factors that I think has led to the pullback in all risk assets. And given the still early stage of adoption of Bitcoin, of Ethereum, of other digital assets, of public blockchains, they are fundamentally still risk assets. And, and people are you know, buying them and and betting on the future growth and adoption of this technology, right? The key word being future. Um, and so, you know, given that I think so much of the the market has been driven by drying up of liquidity and capital markets, um, inflation concerns, rising rate environment, geopolitical uncertainty, you know, et cetera, what have you. Um, I think if that stuff changes, um, you know, at some point soon, then we could see a much quicker rebound um, than we did sort of when you know, Bitcoin and, and other cryptos were essentially irrelevant to the macro investor in 2018. Um, and, and, and that was the era of low correlation, right? Because no one in the sort of big money pockets of the investing landscape was really paying close attention to it. And that isn't true today. So I think it's very possible that if, say, um, the Fed pauses, uh, rate increases, if we get some kind of resolution on the geopolitical stuff if supply chains you know loosen up a bit um inflation comes down etc now that's a lot of things <laughs> but i think my main point is that that correlation to macro markets to equities um is i think really the driver here and so if we, we see some relief on that side I, I don't see a lot of reason why um you know crypto can't rebound on a, on a schedule that looks a lot different than 2018 19 uh, 20 or so. So that's why I'm sort of undecided on on what to call this. Um, it, you know, I was here back then. I don't think anyone was really calling it, um, at least not, you know, five, six months into the downturn following the 2017 peak. People weren't calling it a crypto winter then. Um, so we may look back on this and say in six months, if we're still, you know, you know, down this much from all time highs, we may call this a crypto winter with sort of much more definitive um, understanding. But I think for now, um, it's obviously a significant, uh, you know, retraction. It's a significant deleveraging. Um, a lot of those unsustainable things have been exposed and are unwinding. There's no doubt about any of that. I think for me, it's more just about the length of the of the downturn. Um, when I think when I say that, you know, because a crypto winter to me feels like a, you know, a 2013 to 2016 kind of vibe. 
um, or a 20, you know, 18 to 2020 kind of thing. And those were multi-year and, and I'm just not sure that it will be multi-year this time. Right, right. And you see a bigger um, correlation with the macro environment this time. So you're watching more heavily for right. relief on the on the macro side than um, indicators even intrinsically in the industry. Yeah, exactly. You know, which I, I think is a sign of maturity in crypto markets. You know, I think we still need, I think, with, particularly with something like Bitcoin, we hope that it will, you know, cross that chasm too and eventually become less correlated with, you know, um, tech companies and, and other dividend yielding, you know, equity investments, um, because it isn't one of those, <laughs> right? But, you know, so long as it's seen as a risk um, bet, then investors... Uh, we'll put it in their risk bucket and think of it like risk. And I think that in the near term, if a recovery happens in sort of broader markets, that that could be positive and constructive for crypto. Okay, moving on, our last topic. Um, we're talking about Gray Glacier, the upgrade, the Ethereum upgrade, Ethereum hard fork upgrade <laughs> that uh, is being enacted this week on the Ethereum network to delay the difficulty bomb. Um, Christine, tell us what the difficulty bomb is first and, and what Great Glacier, uh, about Great Glacier, but uh, before we get into this. Yeah, that sounds good. The difficulty bomb is a mechanism on Ethereum that forcefully and exponentially increases the mining difficulty of the Ethereum blockchain. Um, basically, every 100,000 blocks, there's this artificial increase to mining difficulty such that block production, block times get slower. Um, it becomes, it requires a lot more computational energy for miners to expend in order to um, produce a block, append a new block to the blockchain. Um, and this difficulty mechanism was introduced all the way back in 2015, almost uh, very close to the launch of the, of the blockchain itself, um, because uh, one of the one of the objectives of Ethereum core developers, even way back then, was to eventually transition Ethereum into a proof-of-stake blockchain that would no longer depend at all on mining to, to create network consensus and to, to progress the blockchain. Of course, plans at that time were to launch this transition to proof-of-stake by 2016 or during 2016. Of course, there were several <laughs> delays to that plan because this is a very difficult change. It's such a right. radical change to a, a live blockchain to be able to execute a transition to proof of stake without any downtime to, to applications and users. And it only became harder and harder because the Ethereum ecosystem just exploded. It grew so much over the past seven years. So um, there have been six total delays to the difficulty bomb schedule. Um, actually, five. Gray Glacier, which is upcoming, will be the sixth difficulty bomb delay. Um, I'm checking right now the upgrade countdown. And by the time this podcast gets released on Friday, the um, hard fork will already have been activated. But we're recording this podcast on a Wednesday. So we've still got 16 hours and 47 minutes to go. Yeah. And it was um, it, it, it's so funny, like like the the difficulty bomb is totally artificial, right? It's not some kind of thing with Ethereum. It was added, right? Why was it added specifically? Like, I mean, what is the rationale? What why does having it like coax the developers or whomever to move more quickly with the merge? Like what what is the what was the rationale or what is the rationale? I think there's multiple. There's a lot of reasons for the difficulty bomb. The first, I think it it's almost like a promise to users that inherent to Ethereum's code 
there is a mechanism that forces the the chain to go to proof of stake. I feel like it's a promise to users that this will remain something that Ethereum developers eventually get to. And then the second thing that I think the difficulty bomb does is it does actually create pressure on core developers to work on this upgrade. Um, in the midst of, of a four-phased roadmap, you know, there was Metropolis, Homestead, et cetera. There are many different objectives. And to have the, this mechanism there, I think it makes it a priority in, in the developer's mind. And then the third, of course, is that if you do introduce a mechanism like this, once Ethereum is ready to transition over to a proof-of-stake blockchain, any malicious groups that are trying to, to confuse users by continuing the original proof of work Ethereum blockchain, um, they would have to organize and create consensus around node operators that remain on the Ethereum proof of work blockchain to to defuse the bomb, um, get rid of it somehow. And that that creates some amount of, of technical hurdle um, that I think is is obviously worth implementing just to make sure that any any version of Ethereum uh, proof of work that lives on has a capable developer and user community to to back that kind of a upgrade. Yeah, they can't just keep mining and do nothing, right? They have to actually change code, and um, that that makes sense. I mean, you know, one thing that's interesting is to me the difficulty bomb isn't even as effective on that third point, though. Preventing, you know, it's not that hard to go in there and remove it. Probably from a code standpoint, I'm not an expert, but <laughs> on Ethereum core development, but I ca I can't imagine it's that hard. Um, but it's stable coins, right? One of the things really preventing someone from forking Ethereum is the significant uh, amount and supply of centrally issued stable coins, right? Because if you fork ETH today, the, you know, uh, it's called $50 billion worth of USDC or $40 billion that, that's on Ethereum. Um, those represent a claim on assets held, actual assets held somewhere in a bank. And when you fork the blockchain, you you effectively duplicate the state, right? And so you would duplicate all the tokens, and but there's no there's no, uh, in fact, there's a zero percent likelihood that USDC would say okay, uh, that that Circle would say okay, you know, fifty percent of the now the ETH USDC and the ETH you know fork USDC are each worth fifty cents instead of a dollar, right? Because they only have a set amount of collateral, um, and so. Essentially, in the case of a fork, a contentious fork, I've always thought that the centralized stablecoin issuers, which are so essential to the on-chain environment, would be the a major arbiter of which fork becomes the Ethereum. Um, it it helps prevent forkability. I mean, I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but no, um, that's a totally fair point. Point, but also keep in mind that that the rise of centralized stablecoins on Ethereum is only an innovation that happened over the last couple of years. And at the time True. that the difficulty bomb was being created, DeFi was not a major use case for decentralized applications at all. And I right. think when DeFi was blowing up in 2020, um, many people did argue that this perhaps makes Ethereum an unforkable chain. And to that end, I do agree that the third point is a little bit archaic for the rationale for, for the difficulty bomb. Um, but I think that the difficulty bomb still is part of tradition. It's part of this, this kind of culture that Ethereum developers have created around this transition to proof of stake. And even though there isn't a real logical, you know, practical reason for the bomb to exist, it has 
having been around since 2015, I think is something that developers really want to carry through until the transition actually happens. Interesting. And and so um, just quickly on, on this difficulty bomb delay, um, there had been hope that they wouldn't have to delay it, right? That the merge would actually occur soon enough um, that there would be, you know, minor disruption from the increasing block times this go around. Um, but I guess what a couple of the delays and, and, you know, not major ones most recently, but a couple of the sort of re-estimating of when the merge can actually occur over the last couple months has just necessitated. And I remember there was some debate you wrote about this, but A, is that why? And B, how long have they now delayed it for? They've delayed it back 500,000 blocks, 2.5 months, and that gives developers until around September, October to activate the merge on on mainnet. And in my personal opinion, I think this delay to the difficulty bomb was inevitable. I mean, it, it was known, I think, around March, if not earlier, uh, that there would have to be a sixth delay to the bomb. But the reason why developers, in my opinion, delayed this decision up until now, um, and block times are already starting to see uh, the effects of the of the current difficulty bomb schedule, block times, the last I checked, were 16 seconds on average. Um, the reason why is because- And they're supposed to be, what, like 12, 13 seconds, right? 13 seconds, yeah. Um, yeah. Between 12 to 14, it's variable, but you know, within that range. <laughs> um, but- I think the reason why they delayed it this much was because they really wanted to make sure that this sixth bomb delay is the last one that they ever have to do. And if they are able to continue to push the limits as to to the current difficulty bomb schedule, they get more information about testing, about how far along they are in terms of the development progress. Interesting. And right. so they really, right. you know, came down to the wire here. And so I feel more confident that this decision was made with like the most amount of information possible. Um, that said, I mean, developers, Ethereum core developers specifically have a horrible track record of being able to accurately um, estimate just how much time they need to be able to execute this upgrade. Um, but I will say that it got pretty concerning at during some all core developer car- calls when developers were willing to allow block times to go up to 20 30 seconds um, just to to make sure that um, just to give them enough time to 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 have all their ducks in a row right. and to know exactly what was going on with merge testing. So I'm very glad that, you know, ultimately the voice of reason that fought for decentralized applications and user functionality won out. Um, but there is quite there is still quite a lot to be done <laughs> for merge testing until we see it on on mainnet. Awesome. And, and Ethereum's got a, uh, sorry, Christine's got a report coming out soon on the risks uh, associated with executing the merge, which I think um, goes into some of this stuff on the, on the difficulty bomb and the, and, 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 and other, um, and the other, the TTD, I don't even want to get into it yet because uh, it'll come out soon, but um, just on the actual execution risk around actually implementing the merge once they're ready to do so. But I guess that 500,000 block, 2.5 month delay does signal um, core developer, and not a longer one, does signal their sort of confidence that they're getting really close, right? Right, right. And one point that I will say about um, testing and what's really unique about testing for the merge is that a lot of these delays, I believe, are because Ethereum core developers are trying to make sure that uh, there are four execution layer client teams 
basically four client options that anyone can choose from to follow along with the merge upgrade. Um, in order to upgrade your nodes, you, most people usually run Geth, which is just one client type. And that's the only client that um, people really rely on to, to connect to the Ethereum network. Um, but I think with the merge, they're basically trying to get four different client softwares up to speed, uh, production ready, including four different consensus layer clients. So it's just a lot of different software types that have to be able to interact with each other, have to be ready for this upgrade rather than just one core software, um, one core client software. Awesome. Really interesting. Uh, I've always wondered about the bomb. Uh, but anyway, as you uh, listen to this, uh, most likely it will have already occurred. Um, the hard fork Gray Glacier that will remove this um, on, uh, which it, it was supposed to, uh, yeah, well, I guess because it's because block times are slow. And a couple of days ago, the estimate was 1 or 2 p.m. Pacific today, Wednesday, June 29th. But you say it's about 6, it's 2 p.m. Uh, uh, Eastern, that's a, you were saying 16 hours from now. So I guess it's a little later than expected uh, to actually implement. But um, yeah, as you're listening to this on Friday, uh, you know, June 31st, um, it should have already happened. So great. Okay, let's let's move on. Uh, let's talk about some of our quick takes real quick. Just a couple this week. Um, first, uh, you know, this is these are for Lucas and, and Christine to chime in on, uh, you know, CoinFlex, um, a cryptocurrency exchange says Roger Ver, uh, a, a early Bitcoiner, um, big major proponent of Bitcoin cash um, ever since the block size wars, um, says that Roger uh, owes it $47 million, um, and uh, for, I guess, a, a, a margin debt and is uh, has not paid them. And so they are launching a token called RVUSD, which apparently they will use to pay back uh or they will they will pay token holders dividends with the that themselves are funded by this is a weird one funded by the interest that they receive on the outstanding debt from roger ver um and use the proceeds i guess from selling this token as a way to recapitalize um <laughs> i mean things are getting weird out here uh i don't know <laughs> what do you think what an excellent use case for decentralized finance and cryptocurrencies to be able to uh yeah use it use this this structure to pay back your debt i think that it's actually quite sad but you know yeah yeah i i would agree i mean i think it, it didn't it also come out that uh, roger bear was borrowing that unsecured is, is is that correct and it's just a yeah i don't know the, the, there was a whole it was really kind of a, a humorous and wild situation because coinflex's ceo on twitter you know named roger veer as a, a debtor to them and um, and then Roger denied it and said that actually they owed him money. So on Twitter, um, you know, I, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, okay. MicroStrategy, uh, the business intelligence software company run by Michael Saylor. Um, they announced today on Wednesday that they just bought $10 million worth more of Bitcoin. Um, I think their average cost basis is now around $30,000. Um, Bitcoin right now, as we talk, is trading in the high 19,000s, no, right about at 20,000. That brings their total stack to 130 million Bitcoin, pretty massive. I mean, like you like you said, Alex, if this doesn't turn out to be a crypto winter and uh, you know we start to see things turn around positively, I think you know, MicroStrategy and Michael Saylor might look like uh, geniuses. But um, on the other hand, I mean, this 
from from an external perspective, it seems like someone who's just continuing to double down and double down to zero. You know, <laughs> I wonder if Bitcoin was one thousand dollars if you know they would announce another. At what point? It's hard to know. Yeah, exactly. He's DCAing. I mean, ten million is not really that big a buy for for a company. I guess they're you know he's Michael Saylor. Remember, pledged to essentially keep a portion of their treasury always in Bitcoin. So maybe he's just you know as they make money, he's he himself is dollar cost averaging. They themselves, the company, is dollar cost averaging. Um, okay, here's a weird one. I don't know what this uh, source is exactly, but it, I think the facts make sense. Um, so we'll throw it out here. A, a, an outlet called CoinCub issued a report saying that North Korea is the biggest country profiting from crypto crime, netting them over $1.5 billion so far. Um they, they were behind the attack on the Ronin Bridge, according to U.S. officials, the Lazarus Group, which is a North Korean affiliated, you know, hacking group, probably just North Korean state hackers, I guess. But um, that was a $650 million or so hack. So the number doesn't surprise me. And I also heard that the amount of crypto that the North Korean government holds, because crypto has has plummeted so much from their all-time highs it's impacting north korea's um nuclear program that they just oh, wow. they're not like the 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 crypto crash is impacting like the budget of the north korean government <laughs> because they relied <laughs> so heavily on oh, crypto wow. um so i thought that That's was wild. quite interesting yeah i think it's i think it's just another example of one, um, these type of narratives might take hold and people are going to start, you know, saying this is why cryptocurrency is, you know, not a good thing to use, which I hope is not the case. But um, I, I actually have a friend who used to work at a market making firm and they got hacked and lost all of their assets. And um, after an extensive investigation, it was revealed that it was North Korea. So it's not just these big bridge hacks. I mean, I think, you know, if you're a firm out there, you've got to be pretty sophisticated and recognize that there's like very sophisticated North Korean um, state hackers who are going to try and come after you because it's a really easy easy way for them to get funds that they can then use for their own country. All right, that's all we're going to do today. Thank you so much, uh, Lucas Chayan, Christine Kim from Galaxy Digital Research, Bimnet Abibi uh, from Galaxy Digital Trading. Um, as always, please like, subscribe, rate, whatever uh, that you do, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. And We'll be back next week uh, with another great one. This was Galaxy Brains. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed this show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about Galaxy Digital Research and what we work on, check us out on Twitter at GLXYResearch and read our reports at galaxydigital.io slash research. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you next time.